Well, friends, it is good to be with you on this Friday morning. I have heard that it is windy in Johannesburg. It certainly was a little bit cold as I woke up this morning and hit the road to head to Pretoria in order to arrive at the Radio Pulpit Studios, but I'm glad that I'm here. You are listening to Radio Pulpit and Radio Cape Pulpit with me, Mark Penrith, your host. And this morning I am flying solo. Well, I guess uh, not solo. I have Mpo uh, pressing the buttons and making sure that the lights stay on, uh, co-partnering with me on this great adventure uh, on this uh, Friday morning. This morning, guys, we're going to be doing something slightly different. Um, On Table Talk, we normally have various guests come on and we converse on a range of Bible subjects. But this morning we are going to be doing questions and answers, Bible Q&A with Mark on Table Talk. So I'm looking forward to your questions and your answers rolling in. I have my Bible alongside of me and I am looking forward to answering various questions about uh, this life, this Christian life, and about a biblical worldview and about what God's Word says on a range of topics uh, as you send your questions in. So how might you send your questions in, you ask? And the answer is, you can use WhatsApp and Telegram. The telephone number is, write this down quickly, Find a pen and paper, 082-657-2729. I love voice notes, so get those voice notes rolling in. Uh, we are also available on Facebook, the Facebook page that you can drop comments on, uh, particularly in the in the uh, stream, the live stream that has gone out now, is Radio Pulpit Radio Console. Um, and on that Facebook page, you will see um, a live a video stream of what's going on in the studio. You can drop your comments straight underneath that stream and I will see it pop up on the console in front of me. And then lastly on Twitter, uh, the Twitter handle is at 657am and we are available on Twitter as well. Each Friday we chat uh, to Michael Swain from an organization called 4SA. Uh, Michael is a friend. He is also the executive director of 4SA. He studied abroad uh, law and has been successful in business and is a co-founder of the His People Every Nation Church Movement in South Africa. And uh, really, as we interact with him, he brings contemporary issues uh, that the organization Freedom of Religion South Africa is engaging with uh, government, with the state um, around. And this morning he is going to bring us some feedback on one or two issues that we've actually been speaking about for a while. Michael, brother, it's good to have you with us. Always good to be with you, Mark. Great stuff. Uh, I've heard that there is a massive cold front coming into Cape Town that should hit us by about Sunday. Well, please God, we love the rain. <laughs> if you lived under the, the, the threat of drought, which we did for about three or four years, and we were all literally sort of almost collecting water in bottles. Oh, man, then, I remember you know, that. Rain, well, good stuff. Praise the Lord that the, the drought has been broken. But the idea of a cold front um, sweeping up over the country means that listeners need to break out their winter willies sooner rather than later. And I hear that there's snow on the... Whatever mountains, I saw somebody posting pictures of snow uh, this morning. So clearly, there is a little bit of coldness about. Brother, you didn't uh, you didn't call in to chat about the weather. Uh, you called in to chat about important matters of state. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Yes. I, I think I also would just like to say that, um, very importantly, we, for SA, we have a roadshow, which is basically a, a, a sort of a 40-minute presentation or thereabouts that we do live in person. If you happen to be in Cape Town, you can attend it or you can zoom into it. And we're going to be giving perhaps more detail than we're able to do in a short interview on a number of topics, some of which are literally the most significant and maybe severe threats that we've seen to our religious freedom since we've been in existence. And I mean, we've been doing this for now seven years, um, mm. but it, particularly in the form of the Papuda Amendment Bill, which is going to amend the so-called Equality Act um, to make it basically anything but equal. It literally will convert this into the most draconian and invasive piece of legislation that we have ever seen, uh, certainly since the apartheid era. So no, please, no, Ma Ma let Ma your I've, listeners tune into that. I've been to a couple of these roadshows uh, that you've put up as you've brought them to Johannesburg. The idea of jumping on a, a Zoom call or a Skype call or whatever you'll use to facilitate that um, to uh, to break into a Cape Town roadshow uh, appeals to me. Uh, just from my perspective, what I found at the 4SA roadshows was was folk that really knew what they were talking about. I mean, you are working alongside advocates, alongside folk that are speaking in the corridors of power to various different people that have studied the legislation that is on the table and really have wrapped their heads around it well and then bring it in layman's terms to Christians and to church leaders just like me in, in ways that we can understand. So uh, every time that I've been to these roadshows, they've been excellent. Um, can you maybe just tell the listeners how they might get on board, how they might find out details about this, how they might sign up if a sign-up is needed? Well, the easiest way is to get onto our website, which is, of course, www.forsa.org.za. And you'll see on the home page in the spotlight, there is uh, a, a little link that you click and you can register. Of course, it's free of charge um, and it takes place on Tuesday, the 8th of June uh, from 6.30 until uh, 8. Uh, it, it actually, the, the Q&A will probably be about 40 minutes of that. So if you just want to tune in for the presentation, then just join the earlier section. But please listen. There is no merit in ignorance at the moment. We sure. need to be aware and alert of these things because unless we know what's going on, we can't actually respond appropriately. And we do live, thank God, in a democracy where even though we might see these things coming down the pipeline, and believe me, they are pretty egregious, then we don't know what to do. But we will give you the tools, we will give you the opportunity, the ability, the contacts, so we can truly push back on these things. And we must because uh, if we do in sufficient numbers, then we can potentially prevent these things from going through, at least in their current form. So uh, there, there's a number of topics on the table that we can talk through this morning. And, and I want to make sure that we give um, adequate time for you to really address each one of the questions that I have for you. Um, Michael, the first one is we know that schools have recently opened uh, for sports competitions, uh, both contact sports and non-competitions contact sports although i think that might have changed even e even in the last kind of 24 48 hours extramural activities and tournaments between schools and districts and provincial and national teams up to a maximum of 250 people indoors and 500 people in outdoor gatherings but what does it mean for churches that meet in schools on sunday mornings 
can they now meet in schools? This is very relevant <laughs> to the church that I serve. No, well, unfortunately not. And we did originally pose this question to the Department of Education uh, because our viewpoint of it was that you know, what they were actually allowing when they were allowing contact sports and, and other sports and referees and all the rest of it was that without any time constraints, by the way, which, of course, that didn't apply to the church regulations there. Yes. Um, this was actually more potentially uh, dangerous in terms of a vector of infection than a meeting on a Sunday because you're actually mingling and mixing different groups together. Sure. Uh, whereas, of course, a, a church also meets on a day when schools typically aren't present. Yes. Um, they're not open. So we're just using the facilities and we know that the um, infection doesn't actually remain on contact uh, surfaces in any event. And part of the regulations say that everything has to be sanitized too. So we just simply were arguing and putting the case that there is no good reason, therefore, if you're allowing the sports to take place, not to allow churches. And of course, many churches meet in or used to meet in school facilities and many particularly in disadvantaged areas met in um, school and the halls and even classrooms for that matter. So we were saying, look, if you're allowing one, you should surely be considering allowing the other. It used to be the case, of course, yeah. and it used to be the case that schools had the ability through their school governing bodies to actually rent their facilities. And it was a great source of additional income for them so that they could obviously improve their own services to their learners. And it was obviously a great service to the churches. It gave them a place to meet. Um, but unfortunately, as you may have seen, the infection rates are starting to climb. And I think that was the reason why government uh, two days ago now said that they would not allow contact sports anymore. Mm. So, so Michael, j just help me um, clarify this in my mind. Y you're speaking to the Department of Education at a national level or at a local provincial level down in the Western Cape? No, at a national level, uh, because obviously whatever's decided nationally is going to affect all provinces. Um, the COVID regulations are national regulations, so yes, whatever yes. the Minister of Basic Education says applies to all provinces, yeah. Well, Brother, please, on this particular issue, um, keep us updated. Looking forward to how that conversation progresses over time. Absolutely, we will. I mean, we're going to watch it closely. You know, as we've said from the beginning, the only good and valid reason why government can put any of these restrictions on us, uh, un particularly under a state of national disaster, is if they can show that they are reasonable and justifiable and equitable and fit for purpose. So we absolutely understand that you know, if there is this third wave coming and certainly the infection rates have been ticking up a little bit, um, then they would be within their rights to actually put in the necessary restrictions. But as soon as we see these flattening out or maybe the third wave isn't nearly as bad as some people are predicting or projecting that it could be, then we must be able to be restored to the fullness of our constitutional rights. Mm. Can we just tease out something which you mentioned as you were talking about uh, churches that have been in schools for a long time? For for some of them, they'd have a contract with the, with the school. Uh, I mean, and in reality, it would be very difficult for them to operate um, uh, and to find facilities elsewhere. What happens in those kinds of scenarios? Well, if government basically intervene and bring about regulations, effectively government has, has cancelled the contract. And normally uh, in contracts, there, there are provisions 
which will say that there are there is the ability for for, for that to effectively not carry any liability. It would be very unfair mm. uh, if government came and arbitrarily cancelled your contract if you then have to sort of pay damages for, uh, for that purpose. Yes. Um, but nevertheless, the, you know, they, the, this really does affect to a large measure the poorer schools in rural areas. Mm. Um, because, you know, number one, they were the ones who were probably benefiting more from the income that was sure. being generated. Um, and secondly, they also wanted to, you know, they, they, they say that they don't have the opportunity or the ability to perhaps bring the sanitation in place. And that was the reason that they gave. But, you know, we just have to watch this very carefully. Mm. Um, they're not going to change the regulations for schools on Sundays, they have told us. Uh, and they're going to monitor the situation. And they have said that we should stay in touch with them um, because look, the current lockdown, if you like, on school premises really does uh, greatly infringe the religious rights of churches and religious organizations who simply can't meet at this point yes. in a corporate context, even though they're technically allowed to. Yes. So we are going to be looking at this, pushing this, pressing back on this because we obviously want to make sure that religion can be practiced as freely and as widely and as openly as possible. Brother, I'm very grateful to you and to the organization that you serve for the way that you serve the broader body. Um, re really uh, enjoy interaction with you and, and hearing kind of cutting edge of what's happening um, as you guys engage with people that very often um, a, a person like like me doesn't have access to um maybe just to take a step backward back to the road show um you mentioned the papuda uh, amendment bill and just the importance and 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 what a, a large effect that will have uh, on us as a nation and why it's important to engage on that now um what are the other kinds of topics that you will be covering in the in the road show um and and what is the date of the road show Okay, so the date of the roadshow is the 8th of June, which is a Tuesday, mm. and it's going to be in the evening from 6, uh, 6.30 uh, live uh, and also on Zoom. That's okay. when we're going to start. So, um, And it goes on until 8 o'clock. So it's an hour and a half, but it includes Q&A. We're going to try and pick up questions. Often that's the most valuable part of the evening, in fact, when people sure. ask really what's on their mind or what's affecting and impacting them. It's going to be not just on the Papuda Amendment Bill, but, of course, the marriage policy, the single marriage policy. Uh, the Department of Home Affairs have just released their policy. There's been obviously quite a lot of outcry about polyandry, um, <laughs> which is part of the policy. In other words, a, a woman can marry more than one husband, um, as opposed to polygamy, where a man could marry more than one wife also um, i suppose crazy <laughs> well you know the thing is we we live in a secular uh, democracy basically um i mean yes we do have freedom of religion within it but and this is why these policies can be so you know um, for, for want of a better word uh, dangerous when you talk about equality for example well if you think about it why can a woman not marry two husbands if a man can marry two wives I mean, that's equality, right? Mm. But the fact of the matter is, is that it, it is obviously something which is not what, say, a Christian uh, religious marriage officer should be compelled to solemnize. Mm. So this is really where we come in and, and fight it from a freedom of religion point of view. And then, of course, we're going to be talking lockdown regulations and what's the latest developments and some of the current cases. We have some very significant current cases. There's a case, for example, in uh, Chatsworth where... Uh, a young evangelist who simply uh, declared that the supremacy of Christ is, again, 
in the Equality Act uh, being taken to task for basically what they amount they amounts to Hindu bashing or hate speech. And they even try to open a criminal case against him. So we live in interesting times, Mark. But yeah. uh, we are here for, I say, to push back and to hold the line and to uphold and protect and promote our constitutional uh, freedom of religion rights because we're going to stand on the law while while we can we're going to stand on it well brother in closing um let me point listeners to where they can go to find out more about issues that are affecting their religious freedom and the work that 4SA is doing if i do that on on your behalf and um, just to point people um to your website uh, www.4sa.org.za and there they can view 4SA's latest articles they can sign up for your newsletters um, and then also just to encourage them to follow you guys on social media and Facebook um, and that handle will be Freedom of Religion SA Freedom of Religion SA um, and uh, yeah I just thank you again Michael for all the work that you guys are doing Brilliant, thank you Mark and we look forward to speaking to you next week. God bless, bye well, listeners, as you are uh, engaging with us on Radio Pulpit and Radio K Pulpit, let me remind you that this morning we will be going through questions and answers. And we're going to be going through your questions and answers, which really requires you um, to send them in. Let me tell you once again how you can do that. Um, we are on WhatsApp and Telegram. Uh, I do see that we do have a WhatsApp voice note that has come in from John. We will listen to that uh, shortly, John, and then get into the question that you have asked. Please do get those voice notes rolling in. If you have a pen and paper handy, here is the telephone number that you can engage on WhatsApp and, tele and Telegram on 082-657-2729. We are also on Facebook. The Facebook um, uh, page name is Radio Pulpit, Radio Console, and there you will see we are currently live streaming. Uh, you will see me uh, online, and you can drop uh, comments uh, underneath the stream below. I look forward to reading those. They will pop up on the console that I have in front of me. Um, and then on Twitter, we are on the handle at 657am, at 657am. Get those voice notes, get those comments um, rolling in. Looking forward to listening to the questions and answers that you have. Let's start off now with a voice note from John. Good morning, Pastor. Uh, thank you for the awesome show. Just got a quick question, something I've just been thinking about. And um, basically, I mean, we, we understand that salvation is through, through uh, belief in Christ alone and accepting Him as our Lord and our Savior, and that there's no other way to God but through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, my question is, if we read in the Old Testament, you know, if we take a person like Abraham, who obviously never called upon the name of Jesus at any point in his life, um, yet God did find favor with Abraham because of his faith in God. So my question is, is it possible for someone to have faith in God, the God, the Creator God, Yahweh? Maybe perhaps they they don't know His name specifically, but in God Himself, um, without ever possibly hearing the name of Jesus, um, would that person then be considered saved, in your opinion? 
just as Abraham was, even though he never called upon the name of Jesus, but he did have faith in God. Um, yeah, I'd love to know your comments on that. Thank you for the show and be blessed. John, that is an absolutely smashing, awesome question to get the show started. Uh, thanks so much for calling in. I really, really even enjoyed listening to it um, because there were so many nuances uh, in the question. Uh, it wasn't just how did Old Testament saints get saved, but really how did Old Testament saints get saved if they weren't calling on the name of Christ? Um, just a whole lot of scripture floods to mind uh, as I listen to your question. I'm going to start off by just turning to Hebrews chapter 11, just so that we can talk about how the New Testament views the Old Testament saints, and Abraham in particular. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, we start off uh, in verse 1 with very familiar uh, text. Now, faith is the Thank reality so of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen, for by it our ancestors won God's approval. So, Whatever answer we're going to give, it's really going to end out with faith. It is going to end out with faith based on Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 and 2. As we go to uh, verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created and the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. If you run your eyes down your Bible and you get to verse 8, it actually deals with with Abraham himself and it says by faith Abraham when he was called obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance he went out even though he did not know where he was going by faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise and just maybe underline that word promise 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 living in tents and as did Isaac and Jacob co-heirs of the same promise for he was looking forward to the city that has a foundations whose architect and builder is God uh, the writer of Hebrews then goes and speaks about Sarah um, and speaks of a little bit about this promise even in verse 12 therefore from one man in fact from one who is as good as dead came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore that's a great place to start to talk about, well, how was Abraham saved? If he, if he did not know the name of Jesus Christ, upon what grounds was his faith made secure? We would then start to go and look at the biblical narrative, right? The biblical narrative. Uh, we know that in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the story of creation. Uh, the Bible opens with those amazing words, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And then chapter 1 really lays out and details that account of creation, um, how God went about creating by, by, um, by, by speaking um, into existence all of the expanse and all of the creatures and, and even man whom he created in his, in his image. By the time we get to the end of Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, what we have is a creation which has been created in untested perfection. And in Genesis chapter 3 we have the fall of man into sin. We have the first man, uh, Adam, having been given law, uh, do not eat of the tree in the center of the garden, um, disobeying God as Eve is beguiled, as she is 
um, is uh, made a fool of by the snake who, who charms her, who convinces her that by eating of this tree, the fruit of this tree, not only will it be um, good for food, but it will make her like God. She, she takes of it, she eats, she breaks of it and shares it with Adam. And through his willful sin, sin comes to all men so that all men are in need of a savior desperate need of a savior um, as we look at the story of mankind right from Genesis in Genesis chapter 3 or all the way through right to the, the, the chapter before uh, the end of the story in Revelation uh, we have this, the story of sin and the, the way that sin has ravished um, our, 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 our species has, has ravished man how it has brought us low and yet, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the beginning of that word promise. Um, it starts off as a curse, um, really, as, as, as God curses the, and as a consequence of sin, as God curses first the serpent and then the woman and then Adam himself. But in the curse against the serpent, God says this in verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put hostility between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he will strike your head and you will strike his heel and we have the entry into the biblical narrative the story of God's word of a promise of one who is to come one who will literally put Satan underneath his foot and be victorious over him who will crush the head of that wicked serpent who will conquer as the, the Old Testament begins to reveal in increasing clarity and as the New Testament makes absolutely clear for us one who will conquer sin and conquer death and conquer this world and conquer Satan himself and that one is none other than Jesus Christ by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12 we are introduced to this person of um, of Abram of Abraham and there again God makes a promise to Abraham uh, at the time his name is still Abram and the Lord said to Abram in chapter 12 verse 1 go out from your land your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and what we really have there is is a continuation of that promise that promise that was made um, in that curse to the serpent and then flows through the rest of scripture uh, this promise to Abraham that there is one who's coming who, who will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth and he will come through you Abraham the, the most startling thing is that Abraham was saved <laughs> through faith in Jesus Christ not Jesus in terms of a name that he knew or a person who had been revealed to him with the same kind of clarity that Jesus Christ has been revealed to us as New Testament saints but Abraham was it was revealed to Abraham that there was a promise of one to come and upon the promises of God Abraham staked his faith he was saved by faith alone in Christ alone he might not have called on the name of Christ but his faith was in the promise that was to come it's not 
really too different uh, than to us as believers in the New Testament. We put our faith and our trust in the promise that has come. For indeed, Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, that great promised seed, the seed that was promised even to King David, that he would establish a throne uh, that would be without end, uh, the promise that is like a scarlet thread running through all of the Old Testament, the promise that the um, prophets uh, spoke to, Isaiah, uh, that there will be one who will be a prince of peace, um, a, a great father, um, um, Micah, lo unto you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler. That the scarlet thread through the Old Testament resulted in Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior. And the most amazing thing about Jesus is not just his person, but also his work. His person is that he is fully God and fully man. Uh, this is revealed with increasing clarity as we go through the Old Testament and as we enter into the New Testament. It was revealed um, in part to Isaiah. It was revealed in part um, uh, through God's word in the Old Testament, even to King David himself, who says, uh, my Lord said to the Lord, uh, sit at my right hand, and then revealed with clarity in the New Testament by the gospel writers and in the epistles of Paul and John and Peter and even in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the exact representative presentation of God himself. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. And God died that we might live. He paid the debt which our sin demanded on the tree of Calvary. And as he died, as he declared, it is finished, it truly was. The curse had been broken. <laughs> Friends, the door of heaven stands wide open that we might be saved by faith and trust in him. Abraham put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ who is to come. And we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who has come and who is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. And dear listener, maybe if I just, you know, come to the end of the answer to this question <laughs> as we arrive uh, at, the, at the fullness of the question, let me just say, friends, our faith and our trust must be placed in Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. What he said then is true to us now, and might he be glorified as men and women put their faith and trust in him. We got another question that has come in from uh, Peter Smith. Uh, Peter, it's really good to have you listening in on the show. He says, Enjoy the show as always. Unfortunately, I have a meeting now and can't finish, in, uh, can't finish listening to the live show, but we'll catch it up later. And maybe just to say um, that the shows stay on the Radio Pulpit um, Facebook page. They can be accessed. Uh, or you can go to Crystal Park Baptist Church slash Table Talk. Uh, and the shows, I've got a... Um, I have them all laid out and, and what the show title was and who was interviewed uh, on any given Friday. Um, I will post that link into the show notes a little bit later. Peter does ask a question. He says, as a preacher of God's word, when you approach a text that godly men disagree on the interpretation, like Romans 7, is Paul speaking of himself pre or post generation or the millennium? Uh, do you mention all views and interpretive approaches or only the conviction you hold to in your sermon? Hope 
my question makes sense. I'm typing in a bit of a rush. Uh, Peter, your question does make sense. And I, I mean, it really and truly is kind of complex uh, in terms of the answer. It's not always it's not always easy um, on any given uh, on any given Sunday to know how to answer that. Uh, let me let me give you an example. Uh, I've been preaching for the last maybe two years uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. I have been thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, it's the most incredible book, uh, written thousands of years ago and yet relevant for today, like you would not believe. Let me give you an example of a, a slightly difficult um, a text that we dealt with uh, this past Sunday. Um, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, it says, Send your bread on the surface of the water, and after many days you may find it. Send your bread <laughs> on the surface of the water, and after many days you may find it. What on earth does that mean? I mean, the the, the answer to that question is really, really complex. So as I, I went to the text, I studied it myself for a couple of hours, trying to wrap my mind uh, around the language to see if the language itself might answer the question for me, um, and then eventually needed to go to commentators for a little bit of help. Um, and as I went to the commentators, I realized quite quickly that there were at least um, four views, four views as to what this particular verse might mean. Um, of those four views, one seemed so unlikely to me, I, I didn't even feel that it would be necessary to tell the church uh, what that view was. Uh, there was one possibility, and that's when it says, send your bread on the surface of the water. It's talking about a farming metaphor, um, a farmer going out and throwing his seed, which is now um, pictured as bread, and it landing on the surface of the water, which is a very well-watered field possibility that that's what it meant but it really is an outside possibility it, it it does flow a little bit with a farming metaphor which happens a few verses down um in fact in uh, verse uh, three um but it, it it didn't seem to fit the flow of what was going on in the text uh, the second uh, the third possibility was that this is a um a merchant met metaphor uh, a merchant metaphor the sending out your bread would be the sending out your produce your your merchandise um on the surface of the water means that you 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 putting your merchandise into boats and you 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 sending it out uh, on the water and then after many days you might find out uh, if you have a return uh, you might find out if your your business venture actually derives a profit um, and that seems to fit the context the flow of thought and um, particularly when you look at verse 2 which says give a portion to seven uh, or even to eight for you don't know when disaster might happen it seems that what Solomon what the writer of Ecclesiastes the teacher is saying is uh, diversify your risk um, as you go and uh, go into kind of business um, diversify your risk but his ultimate intention is that you recognize that God is sovereign over all of these things there is a a fourth possibility um and that is that um by sending out your bread on the surface of the water and the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament along with rabbinic tradition um, basically believed that this was be generous um, send your bread out on the surface of the water and after many days you might find it be generous to people that are in need and sometimes as you give uh, to many it might be returned to you 
Well, I had to come to that text and I had to read that text. I had to try and understand that text. I had to understand each one of those um, three possible views and then come up with what what I believed was the probable interpretation, which um, which on Sunday I preached as the merchant metaphor. It seems to fit the flow of thought. Um, it makes the greater point which Solomon is making, um, doing the least injury to the text. Um, and so in answer to your question, Peter, I think that that sometimes a, a pastor is going to make um, the congregation aware of all the views because it will help them to engage with and think through the text and other times he's going to give a stated view um, because it is maybe not part of the macro understanding of, of what the passage is allowing and he's going to move on to uh, to the next point uh, in the passage that he's dealing with it's not as simple as as uh, as a one size fits all um, preaching often requires the pastor to look at all the options uh, and then to make the decision what will be presented uh, to the church or not Mpo is doing a great job of bringing up your questions um, up in front of me and I've got to say guys I am so excited <laughs> there is just so many questions that are pouring in the next question that I am going to look at is from a listener named Barbara um, Barbara says morning pastor I just wanted to ask about the vaccine uh, is it okay to take it? Because there's so much video that says that it has the chip uh, in it, uh, uh, the 666, as an old person. Uh, please, thanks for an awesome program. Oh, and then at the end says anonymous. Um, well, I, I'm sure that there's hundreds of thousands of Barbaras in South Africa. Um, you can remain anonymous, uh, Barbara. Uh, great question around the vaccine. Um, and great question around the question regarding 666 and microchipping and uh, this is something which uh, if you are on WhatsApp you've probably received a couple of videos if you're on Facebook you've probably seen some of your friends have posted stuff um, it always sounds a little bit scary as you watch it um, Barbara I am not a medical GP and so um, I, I'm going to stay a little bit far around uh, away from giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down particularly on the vaccine uh, I might be able to give my own personal uh, conviction on that but 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 I'm I'm not a medical practitioner and so I, I don't want to give medical advice however I definitely can talk um, to the chip um, and the uh, the number 666 uh, uh, as it appears uh, in the chip. Uh, I want us just to turn quickly to Revelation, the book of Revelation. Uh, it's the last book of the Bible. Uh, the Bible starts with the book of Genesis as we spoke about earlier and it ends with the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation we have a rolling conversation, um, uh, a rolling vision um, a rolling revelation of the beast um, and as as John is talking about the beast one of the things that John speaks about uh, is the mark of the beast and the mark of the beast is 666 let me just read some of the text uh, uh, in order to give us context I'll, I'll read from verse 11 and I'll read relatively quickly uh, please do keep up with me uh, then I saw another beast coming out of the earth it had two horns like a lamb 
but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who is wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted and uh, to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let each one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. I'm not going to... I'm going to answer everything related to eschatology and around the conversation of what the interpretation of that text might mean but but I want to put the context of Revelation chapter 13 within the framework of biblical theology because that might give you a little bit of comfort <laughs> so the book of Revelation starts off in the first three chapters with um, seven letters to seven churches seven letters to seven churches and it is very clearly a revelation of Jesus Christ himself to the Apostle John. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ himself to the Apostle John. In fact, um, right at the beginning in, in chapter 1 of Revelation, um, John turns and sees this voice speaking to him, and it is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, dressed in a in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his waist. Uh, and, and, and John falls at his feet and is terribly afraid. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And the living one and then a key verse in the book of revelation he says jesus says to john therefore write what you have seen what is and what will take place after this write what you have seen which is what he is currently seeing jesus christ right in front of him what is and these are the seven letters to the seven churches and then what will take place after this and so revelation follows this flow John writes down what he has seen <laughs> and then he writes down what is and these are the the seven letters that Jesus Christ himself writes through the Apostle John uh, to the churches and then he writes a future view of what will happen we know that it's a future view um, of what will happen and um, because there are some characteristics of the rest of the book of revelation which key us into that fact so for example the church is missing through the book of revelation um, in the first three chapters of revelation these seven letters to the seven churches the word church ecclesia the called out ones the the gathered ones the assembly uh, that word is just repeated over and over and over again and then all of a sudden you turn the page and the rest of the book of revelation is missing the church it's as if they have been raptured <laughs> um, and and i say that with a big smile on my face because that 
is truly what I believe that the church there will come a time when the church is raptured and then for a period of time uh, seven years three and a three and a half years of tribulation and then three and a half years of great tribulation there will come a time where Satan really brings immense hardship and is loosed on the earth in chapter 13 of Revelation we have a picture of the loosing of Satan on the earth and so when we read of this dragon when we read of this beast when we read of this number 666 my understanding anonymous is that this is a future event now does that mean that the world stage is not being set even as we speak we see various different pieces uh, coming together even macro pieces like nations being put into position um, and so it, it makes sense that the world is moving toward its final end game um, but we're not there yet uh, we're not in the middle of Revelation chapter 13. So um, I, I hope that gives you some comfort that this particular vaccine, <laughs> I don't believe, is the mark of the beast that has been spoken about in Revelation chapter 13. Thanks. That, that, was, a, that was a great question. You guys are giving me gymnastics this morning. Uh, I am enjoying it. I, I'm looking at the time. I can't believe how quick... <laughs> things are going. I do want to read to you a um, a comment from Glenn Williams regarding the, the Old Testament saints. Glenn says, uh, Glenn is from Macanyo Theological College um, and a regular listener. It's always great to hear from you, Glenn. Uh, the Old Testament saints were saved by faith, looking forward to the promised Messiah who was to come. New Testament saints are saved by the same faith, looking backward to the promised Messiah who has come and will come again yes thank you that's a uh, great clarity there glenn um okay as we are as we are answering questions maybe you're joining us a little bit late and you have an intriguing question that you would like to ask bible q a with mark on table talk uh, let me once again just give you the ways that you can engage with us uh, before we go on to the next question from penny um the the ways to engage are through WhatsApp and Telegram. The telephone number is 0826572729. Get those voice notes rolling in. I really enjoy voice notes. Love listening to your voices. Uh, you can also drop comments on the Radio Pulpit Facebook page. Uh, that uh, Facebook page is Radio Pulpit slash Radio Console. Um, and we have a Twitter handle at 657AM. Guys, does anybody use Twitter anymore? I don't think I ever see tweets coming in. <laughs> <laughs> Love to hear some of you uh, who are tweeting away. Um, the next question comes in from Penny. Penny is a long-time listener as well. Lovely to uh, to see your question coming in. She says, good morning, Mark. I have a question that I often get asked. How do I explain why God allows little children to be raped and abused? A specific question I was asked was, if he's such a good and loving God, how can he sit by and watch what happens to these children, especially in the Holocaust, and Penny goes on uh, to discuss um, uh, other scenarios. Um, uh, yeah, Penny, thanks for that question. What a what a tough question to get asked. Um, and uh, and I think that question probably gets asked in in two contexts. One, a person who is um, who's angry with God because of what they see in the world. 
and and probably gets asked also by by those who are genuinely curious, uh, trying to put this all together, trying to understand um, what what is going on here. So. I guess in in many ways this goes back to that original question uh, regarding Abraham and faith and how we started uh, in a garden in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 we we have this almighty God who is all-powerful and all-sovereign and all-knowing, creating. Uh, I actually alluded to it as we were looking at Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And and I referenced the the name of God which is used in that verse as Elohim. Elohim really referring to the might of God, the the mightiness uh, of God this creative, uh, immense God who made all things. Well, this mighty God creates this amazing creation and then sets man, Adam and Eve, in it um, and gives them roles and responsibilities. They are to steward uh, the creation which he has made. He, he says very specifically to them um, in terms of this mandate that they are to subdue the earth, uh, that they are to fill the earth. Um, he gives them He gives them a role to play um, as regents of our great and glorious king. Well, in truth, Adam and Eve, um, Adam and Eve willfully choose to disobey God. Um, it's important to note that this in no way undermines the sovereignty of God. That that man rebels against God. It does not make God the author of sin, even though God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That He knows all things. Um, but God chose to uh, God. But man chose to rebel against God in Genesis chapter 3. And then from there, (laughs) the world rapidly, rapidly becomes a mess. Uh, In Genesis chapter 4, we've got the story of Cain um, being uh, murdering Abel. Um, In Genesis chapter 5, we have the line of Seth, which might sound great. But by the time you get to Genesis uh, chapter 6, well, in in Genesis chapter 4, we were talking about uh, with Michael Swain uh, from 4SA earlier about polyandry, which is uh, uh, more than a woman taking more than one husband. I mean, just bizarre. Um, But in our country, we're very familiar with polygamy, uh, a man taking more than one wife. Um, we have the first example of polygamy in, in Genesis chapter 4 and it's not a positive um, it's not a positive story it's the line of Cain it's a it's a man named Lamech taking two wives Ada and Zillah and, and shaking his fist at God and saying if you avenged Cain seven times uh, I will have to be avenged 77 times just um, absolute rebellion well, the, the rebellion against God becomes absolute rank by the time we hit Genesis chapter 6. We'd be familiar with Noah and the flood. But but hear the, hear the heart of God in Genesis chapter 6. In verse 5, he says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved God was grieved the bottom line is through Adam's sin sin has come to all men and man is evil the intention of our heart is on evil all of the time 
God, in Genesis chapter 1, we read, breathed life into the nostrils of Adam. Uh, We read God saying to God, let us make man in our own image. Uh, There's something unique about man, having been created in the image of God. But since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3, there has been something broken about man. Our our nature, our very nature has been corrupted. There's something upside down, inside out and terribly corrupt about us so that we sin (laughs) not just because we love sin but because we are sinners we are sinners inside and so we manifest sin in our lives the kinds of scenarios that you have described um, Penny um, are not scenarios which in any way bring pleasure to God Uh, they are scenarios which grieve God in a Genesis chapter 6 way uh, regretting that he had made man on the earth and was deeply grieved our sin grieves God our sin is disgusting it is despicable it rises up and reaches our nostrils and just like we have described God as being mighty we must also describe God as being just God says in his word that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And we read in the New Testament that we should fear him who can cast us into hell and destroy us. For indeed, God's anger is like a consuming fire. And uh, and and he will have his vengeance on evildoers. Make no mistake. Don't, don't um, uh, confuse um, God's long-suffering. Um, with injustice all injustice will be righted by a God who hates sin we read even in Psalm and this should scare even some people who are listening in today uh, we read in Psalm 5 verse 5 that God does not just hate sin but God hates sinners for indeed we know um, that uh, God does not just hate evildoers but he throws them into hell for all eternity God's justice will prevail. But in the midst of that, we see God's justice and God's love united in the person of Christ. For Jesus comes into this world and he breaks through into time and space and matter and he comes and he lives a human life, afflicted as we are in every way. I mean, he he is humbled. Um, he who is the darling of heaven um, considered equality with God something not to be grasped but emptied himself, um, humbled himself uh, even to death, even to death on a cross. Jesus Christ came into this world to die on a cross for sins he had not committed so that if we put our faith and our trust in him we might be saved penny i do think that when you speak to friends that you love or to family that you love and they ask that kind of question you need to give an honest reply which looks at the attributes of god all of the attributes the fact that god is um all mighty and that the fact that god is all just and that god is long suffering and merciful and stays his hand even for a moment at all sin and big sins and small sins my sins and your sins but that the justice of god is realized in the person of christ as he dies on a cross that we might be saved um that God, that forgiveness is possible um, through God, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, um, that 
when we think of sin, uh, we need to think of all sin and the massive problem that all of humanity is under, that we desperately need a savior and that we can't save ourselves, that some of the most vile sin that we see around us, we ourselves are just being held back from as a kind mercy of God. But if we were left and abandoned to our own sinful nature, we too would spiral out of control. But that this world desperately needs an answer, desperately needs an answer outside of man. And that answer has been provided in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Stephen, I do want to say thank you very much uh, for your comments. Uh, He says that I'm blessed uh, listening to the program. um, And thanks for answers to questions on the vaccine. God bless your broadcast. Um, There are a number of other questions that have come in. We will be answering them um, after uh, we have time for either a musical interlude. We are going to be listening to Brayton Brown, uh, Humble... Oh, uh, we are going to listen to right now, Leon Ferreira, He Didn't Have to Be. Morning, I have enjoyed uh, interacting with each one of you. I see that there are a number of questions that have come in. Um, I, I, I'm very grateful, listeners, um, for all of the interactions. I see a question from Teresa. Hopefully, brother, we'll get to that um, after we engage with a question that has come in from a listener named uh, uh, Anonymous. Uh, and Anonymous asks the following uh, question. Good morning. My question is, as a Christian... When a person has had an abortion, you know it's wrong. There is nothing you can do or say to justify it. But can God forgive the person? That is um, an incredibly uh, deep, um, difficult question. I I, I just acknowledge the pain, um, uh, the confusion and the concern that somebody who has gone through an abortion must have as they engage with scriptures and and wonder if the Lord God can forgive them um, for what has happened. I just want to talk very briefly about abortion and um, and making a, a case for abortion um, being a crime against God, being a rebellious act against God. Um, in Psalm chapter 139, Psalm chapter 139, uh, we read these words. Um, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depth of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. And we just got a a picture in that psalm in, in poetic language of the beginning of life, the inception of life. Uh, The psalmist speaks about being formless. The psalmist speaks about being knit together at a time when DNA and knowledge of how these things happen um, wasn't even known. Uh, And yet we have in this this poetic language um, a picture of a human being coming into being. Uh, And that human comes into being at a time before 
birth. It was you, God, who created me in my inward parts. It was you who knit me together in my mother's womb. Just a, another indication of um, of of life beginning um, before birth can be found in the in the book of Luke in the in the Gospel of Luke uh, in in the Gospel of Luke we start off rather than with Jesus's story we start off with John the Baptist's story and in a visit between Mary and Elizabeth uh, we have um, th- these two ladies coming together <laughs> and and just a, a great joy between the two of them and in verse forty one of chapter one we read that. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside of her, <laughs> and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that John the Baptist recognized um, the Jesus Christ, his his cousin, um, even even in the womb of his mother. Another another indication of of life um, beginning before birth would be in the story of of David. David sins uh, with Bathsheba. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Um, There's consequences for David's actions uh, and that child um, is lost before birth. And yet when David gets up from his grief, when he is done with his period of mourning, he acknowledges before God uh, that he will be reunited with the son uh, in the future. Um, Abortion is a sinful act, uh, and Cindy, my my heart goes goes out to you as uh, I think of just the pain of of working through this and 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 thinking through this. But I do want to make you aware of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, a hope of forgiveness that even wicked acts can be forgiven. And Cindy, by wicked acts, I mean all acts, because um, as listeners are listening into the show, um, many of them will be struggling with guilt um, for sins that aren't described in your question. Um, but but I want to tell you that 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 is the Christian message, <laughs> that God forgives sins, and he does it in and through his son, Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior. Let me give you a an excellent example. I'm going to give you two excellent examples uh, of this, and both involve murder. Um, the first is uh, of the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is like uh, the rock star of the early church. He is going from from city to city and going into synagogues and calling people to saving faith. Eventually, he goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He gets uh, taken down to Caesarea. He gets put on trial um, and has to give an account um, before kings as to whether or not uh, he should be released. And um, it's a courtroom scene. Accusations have been brought against him um, and he is giving a defense. And he gives a defense by first starting off telling about his former life. You see, Paul wasn't always an apostle. Uh, In fact, in 
Acts chapter 26 verse 4 we read that all the Jews knew of his former way of life uh, from his youth. Uh, in actual fact we read in verse 5 that he lived as a Pharisee. Um, a Pharisee being the, the strictest sect of law keeping and abiding Jews. But then he reveals something about his life in verse 9. He says I, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> he wasn't always an apostle that, that promoted the name of Jesus Christ there was a time when Paul hated the name of Jesus Christ and, and lived his life in diametric opposition uh, to the name of Christ in fact Paul was a wicked man in verse 10 he went into Jerusalem he locked up many of the saints in prison because he had received authority for that from the chief priests and when they were put to death Paul was in agreement with them you might remember back to Acts chapter 7, uh, the first martyr, uh, Stephen, Stephanos, uh, the crown. Um, Stephen comes out against the synagogue of the freemen and gives an account of the great and glorious acts of God throughout all of the Old Testament and eventually um, says to the Jews that they are stiff-necked and stubborn people and they gnash their teeth at him and they drag him out of the city and they stone him to death and they put their cloaks at the feet of of a man named Saul. Saul was Paul. In all the synagogues he punished believers. He tried to make them blaspheme. He was terribly enraged at them. He pursued them even to foreign cities. But you know what? <laughs> God was was better, was gooder than Paul was bad. <laughs> he was a greater savior than Paul was a sinner. God saved Paul. While he was traveling to Damascus in verse 12 of Acts chapter 26, he saw a light in verse 13. He fell on the ground in verse 14 and he heard a voice speaking to him. And he asked, Who are you, Lord? And the answer was, I am Jesus, the one that you were persecuting. Paul, Saul at this stage, put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior. What did that mean? Well, in verse 23, he, he describes the gospel message that he believed, that the Messiah must suffer, that Jesus died in his place as a substitute for his sins, that as the first to rise from the dead, he would be proclaimed as a light to the people and to the Gentiles. We're Gentiles, by the way. <laughs> um, if, you're a, if you're a listener this morning and you come from Jewish descent, you are Jewish. But if you are a South African, uh, whether you are white or black or pink or blue, um, you are a Gentile. Uh, and the gospel message to the Gentiles and to the Jews alike is that the Messiah must suffer and that the Messiah rose from the grave in victory over death, in victory over the grave, in victory over sin, in victory over Satan. The first fruits of salvation, Jesus rose, that we might have confidence that the debt has been paid in full and if God can raise Jesus from the dead he might be able to raise us too what is the call on our lives it is spoken about in verse 20 repent and turn to God repent is a 
is a decision that we make in our minds to turn away from our sins, to turn away from our love for this world and from our love for the things of this world and to turn to the cross of Christ where the debt has been paid in full and to put our faith and our trust in him. It's a kind of turning which always results in a life of change as the Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us and brings forth fruit in our lives, uh, fruit in accordance with the salvation which God has wrought. Well, Paul's entire life changed after this. He, he wasn't disobedient anymore. Uh, he says in verse 19, he began to preach in Damascus first and then into Jerusalem and Judea and then even to the Gentiles. And he received help from God in verse 22. And he, sta- and he stood and he testified to both great and small of this glorious truth that God saves murderers even like Paul. Paul was able to say, um, <laughs> I, I'm a sinner. In actual fact, I'm the foremost of sinners. And yet Christ died for me. The other example I'd like to give to you is in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's, a, it's another example of murder. Um, uh, Jesus Christ has been murdered. <laughs> He's been murdered on the day of the Passover. Um, he has been murdered um, by the people in Jerusalem. They have handed him over to godless people uh, who have killed him. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands and then gives a an amazing sermon <laughs> that basically says, you killed Jesus and yet he has risen from the grave, he has ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the murderers in Jerusalem who have been called together because of that loud noise on the day of Pentecost and the, the tongues, the languages known to men that have been spoken by the 120 in that upper room, those people that have gathered uh, to hear this preaching, they are cut to the heart and then say, what then can we do to be saved? <laughs> they know that they murdered the Messiah. How can murderers be saved? They killed the Son of God. And the answer that Peter gives is this. He says, repent. Repent in verse 38. Repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so even as I read your question anonymous and my heart goes out to you i can with confidence say that god forgives sinners just like me and just like you and just like whoever you might be speaking to that is the power of the cross what an almighty amazing god we serve thank you so much for that question um yeah and for stirring our hearts um Another question, Teresa, long-time listener, Teresa, great to have you online with us this morning, says, greetings all, trust you are well. Hey bud, I am well, um, thanks for asking. He says, can an elder stay being an elder if his wife turns her back from the faith? Uh, second part of the question, <laughs> this is a complex one, and if she ends up divorcing him, can he still serve as an elder? And then a second question. Wow, this is loaded, Teresa. Um, please explain the application of Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. And he says, 
asking for a friend. <laughs> okay, that's that's wonderful. Okay, so um, couple of questions there, brother. Let's see how many we can get through. Um, I would say turn with me in your Bibles, if you can. It sounds like the start of a sermon. Um, to the book of One Timothy, you could equally well go to the book of Titus, Titus chapter one. But One Timothy chapter three is a great place to start. I have to bring my Bible a little bit closer to my eyes because my eyeballs don't work that well. I'm getting older. Um, It says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. And if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. And furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Well, as we go through um, God's Word, it seems to quite comprehensively bring um, a lot uh, to the question that you've asked, Teresa. Um, It's speaking about an overseer, and maybe just for context, that word overseer in the New Testament is interchangeable uh, with two other words. Um, The word that we that we interpret or that we translate to being pastor, the word that we interpret or translate to being elder, and the word that we translate to being overseer, biskopos, um, and presbyteros are all interchangeable. And so we're talking here uh, about the pastor, about the elder, about the bishop, um, uh, about one of those who make up the plurality of a local church's leadership. And it says of this person, If he desires this, he must therefore be above reproach. And really, as we look at the rest of the qualifications in that list, that top one becomes the all-encompassing umbrella upon uh, over which the rest of the qualifications in the list fall. An elder must be above reproach. And so as we start to begin to think through uh, the questions that you asked, can an elder stay being an elder if his wife turns her back from the faith? Uh, We might well say, well, you know, in the case of divorce, um, there will be a question mark in terms of his qualification, a question mark in terms of his being blameless, being above reproach. Now that question mark might be resolved over time. It might be it might become obvious to the community that in actual fact, um, in the scenario that you've painted, um, he hasn't walked away from a marriage. Um, his wife has walked away from the marriage. But certainly for a time, there will be a question mark about the blamelessness of the man, about the above reproachness of the man. And so it would seem sensible to me, even as we come to that very first qualification, that the man should stand back, even if it be for a time, um, in order to convey to those who are watching in his blamelessness. It says the husband of one wife, 
for some they would say if a man has been through a divorce for whatever reason um, he would now be disqualified um, from the ministry. I have a very good friend a pastor friend who I hold in very high regard um, that certainly would believe that and so that is one possible interpretation of that text. Um, I do think that the most probable um, interpretation of that particular phrase um, is that a man is called to be a one womaned man, devoted to just one person um, and so I, I wouldn't necessarily say um, that divorce under the conditions that you have um, that you have painted here would necessarily permanently disqualify a person uh, there's other there's other relevant qualifications here in verse 4 he must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity uh, certainly at the point of divorce there would be a question mark in terms of the household and the running of the household um, uh, as we go further down um, it talks again about if you don't know how to manage your own household how would you be able to take care of God's household I think that there is there's also an emotional reality that uh, a person going through the kind of separation which you have described uh, in your question is going to need to attend to children to the house for a period of time there's going to be a necessary stepping back even if he um, is a victim in this particular uh, scenario um, there is going to need to be a, a necessary stepping back uh, furthermore in verse 7 he must have a good reputation amongst outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap um, and there would be a question mark uh, in terms of his competency of his character possibly um, or his witness um, which will need to be dealt with uh, over time and in the community that he is serving the question that you've got though is can an elder stay being an elder if his wife turns back from the faith and my, my answer is I, I think for a period of time and I, I don't know how long that period would be I would imagine that the plurality of elders of that local church would need to be deeply involved in that decision-making process um, a person should necessarily step back because of the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well as in Titus chapter 1 and if she ends up divorcing him can he still serve as an elder uh, I would say in the case of uh, divorce um, if I understand the particular qualification of the husband of one wife being a one womaned man um, that that man would be able to serve as an elder at some stage in the future um, but how long um, that restoration process will take um, that would depend on a number of factors um, which aren't spoken about in your question second question please explain the application of Ephesians chapter 6 I'm turning in my Bible Galatians Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 to 7 I'm going to read uh, the passage it's about children and parents um, and then it continues on uh, to uh, speak about slaves and masters it says children obey your parents in the Lord because this is right and honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and yet you may have a long life in the land fathers don't stir up anger in your children but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord slaves obey your human masters with fear and trembling 
in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever... Uh, and I'm reading on now knowing that whatever good one does slave or free he will receive this back from the Lord uh, and masters treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him so as we come to this text we, we must recognize that this text sits in the the wider context and flow of the book of Ephesians uh, I'm just going to point you back to chapter 5 verse 21 where it says that we must submit to one another in fear of Christ submit to one another in fear of Christ that there is to be a mutual submission which happens in the context of local churches now submission in our day and age is a dirty word <laughs> um, it really is nobody submits to anyone <laughs> uh, the church does not submit to the state uh, citizens don't submit to the state you can see that because there is burning tires all over our country at the moment as we head toward local government elections I imagine that the state of uh, protests and service delivery protests is going to be ramped up immensely nobody submits to anybody <laughs> in our culture wives do not submit to husbands children do not submit to parents um, and certainly employers uh, get away with whatever they can get away with without even consideration to submitting to the employers which are over their heads. We live in a submittingless society. And yet biblically, submission is part and parcel really with all of Scripture. Um, when you think of Jesus Christ, right, we rightfully think of him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We think of him in a Matthew chapter 28 sense. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, Jesus Christ is over all. The heavens and the earth were created through him. He is the radiance and the exact representation of the glory of God. And yet, as we read through the Gospels, we hear the words of Jesus Christ, um, not my will but yours be done to his Father, as Jesus willfully submits himself to the Father. When we think of submission in a New Testament sense, we, we shouldn't think of submission in a repressed kind of way. We should rather think of submission in terms of controlled power, power under control, and then willfully bought um, under another. So that submission uh, isn't something which is a done unwillfully, but submission is something which is done willfully. Submission is not um, a, a giving up of one's power <laughs> or one's right, but rather it is the recognition um, of a role or of a function of another over you, um, either in a situation or for a time. Um, submission is important to the functioning um, both of the church as well as to the functioning of all of society. I mean, you just think of of an army going out to war. 
um, generals having the big picture of the battlefront, um, soldiers being required to submit to their generals uh, because they don't necessarily see what's over the hill or uh, what's behind the ravine on the other side. Um, submission is a necessary part of a functioning, uh, organized organism. Um, and so submission is a functional part of, of what we need to do within the context of the local church. And Paul in Ephesians is talking about the Christian life. Um, he, he's talking about consistency in the Christian life. And then says, friends, if we're going to get this right, we need to submit to one another. And then he starts to give a couple of examples. The first example that he gives is wives to husbands, that wives need to submit to their husbands, uh, even as the church submits to Christ. And that husbands are to love their wives, uh, even as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. Um, that children are to submit to their parents uh, and he he appeals he says listen yeah this isn't just my idea <laughs> he, he appeals all the way back uh, to the ten commandments uh, that children are to honor their parents it's the first command that comes with a promise and then he talks about the relationship between slaves and masters the economic system in Rome completely different to the economic system that we have today and um, slavery also not really akin in in its entirety to slavery as we might uh, perceive it through the 16th century and just the atrocious conditions um, by which uh, um, a repressive um, uh, uh, slavery was conducted um, in that time um, but in the in Roman society up to one quarter of Rome um, was in slavery it was the economic system of the day and what Paul is saying is uh, as as slaves if if we want to um, if we want to demonstrate uh, the amazingness of Jesus Christ if we want to stand out in the culture around us we need to be completely different in the way that we conduct ourselves to the way that everybody else conducts themselves everybody else tries to get away with what they can we need to submit he doesn't just leave it there though he also turns to masters and he says listen yeah you guys also need to live completely different so that the world around you can see that you are different um, and he gives them uh, mechanisms of interacting with the people around them the bottom line is that the Christian life looks like something the entire world um, hates submission the entire world thinks that the idea of a wife submitting to a husband or a child submitting to a parent um, or an employee submitting to an employer is ridiculous um, that in actual fact in this life uh, you should as far as possible <laughs> live it to your own benefit uh, and joy well the Christian says no in this life I will live counterculturally so that Jesus Christ can shine through my life and my testimony great question thank you so much I really enjoyed that um, as we're going through the questions here <coughs> just excuse me recognizing that there are so many uh, that have uh, come in off over the last while. Um, Jean, uh, who I think is a, a long-time listener and who says, God bless Jean at the uh, end of her message, says, Hi Mark, Table Talk, thanks for the balanced reply to Penny's question. God's attributes, his long-suffering and loving, um, but all he will judge evildoers. Um, yes, Jean, this is true. I, I, I do think that very often uh, as we're thinking through these questions, uh, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus, uh, that God himself isn't 
just one attribute, um, but but he has revealed himself uh, in a complexity, a complexity that we need to engage with if we're going to understand uh, his role and his function and his work uh, in this world. Um, I want to read a uh, another question here. Uh, Mark, can you please forward this to the lady who asked the question about forgiveness and abortion? I hope that this will be an encouragement. Um, Oh, uh, I actually don't see a, an attachment there, uh, Tinker. So uh, maybe you can uh, maybe you can uh, 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 send me a, a link. Um, we're just listening to one or two other um, questions and voice notes that have come in. In the meantime, let me say, when it comes to asking questions about the Christian faith, Christians are curious. We should be curious. Um, we, we should hold a Bible that is open in our one hand, even as we engage with the world around us uh, and with the churches that we are in. Your pastor is probably dying to hear your questions. I know I get super excited when I get a call from a Zakele or a call from a Teresa or, or, or a question from somebody in my church uh, who is curious about what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says on all manner of issues. And so I, I would just in, encourage you to uh, to ask many questions from your elders and your pastors in your local churches. We have another question here that comes in from Mavis. Let's uh, listen to it. Great morning, Mark. My spirit is leaping of joy at your tenderness, your understanding, and your the manner in which you're responding to every single question, but especially this last question. So thank you very much. My question pertains to speaking in tongues. Is it something that we all can do, ought to do, can learn to do, or is it indeed one of the spiritual gifts that are given to certain people? Bless you. Well, Mavis, thank you for that question. And we only have 15 minutes left uh, in the <laughs> conversation this morning. And I need about three hours to answer that because I am so slow <laughs> at answering questions. I, if we're going to talk about tongues, the place that we need to start is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So uh, if you've got a Bible with you, now would be a great time to turn to Acts chapter 2. It's not the first time that we've spoken about Acts chapter 2. Uh, this morning I've already said that Acts chapter 2 was the day of Pentecost. I've spoken about, uh, about uh, Peter's great sermon on that day. I've also spoken about... Um, the belief of the Jews in Jerusalem as they repented for the forgiveness of their sins. In fact, that day, 3,000 people were added to the number of disciples. And I made mention uh, of languages known to men. I guess I, I kind of tipped uh, uh, my own interpretation of uh, of Acts chapter 2 when I did that. Um, but, but let's go to Acts chapter 2. Let's just unpack uh, the first uh, 13 verses of Acts chapter 2 and begin the discussion uh, around speaking in tongues um, if God wills it uh, we will we will also get some part towards ending it um, but we would really need to go through Acts chapter uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to do that but in Acts chapter 2 we have the beginning uh, of tongues it says uh, in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 when the day of Pentecost had arrived they were all together in one place 
Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying and they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Well now as we get to verse 4 we are introduced to to the to the disciples in the upper room at that stage there's probably about 120 of them that's spoken about in Acts chapter 1 they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in what is called different tongues and this is clearly a gift which comes from the Holy Spirit and um, more about the fact that this is a gift which comes from the Holy Spirit is discussed by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, a, another great chapter to go to uh, in terms of the speaking of tongues well the question that an that an interested listener will have as we get to chapter 4 is what are these tongues that are being spoken about on Pentecost what are these languages um, uh, is this a, um, a a unknown angelic heavenly tongue uh, or is this something else and that's really described for us uh, in verse 5 and following it says there were Jews staying in Jerusalem devout people from every nation under heaven when the sound occurred a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language and they were astounded and amazed saying look aren't all these who are speaking Galileans how is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, um, Figria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. And they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said they're drunk on new wine. When it comes to tongues in Acts chapter 2, we must note that this was a miracle. What is a miracle? A miracle is God piercing his finger metaphorically through time and space and matter into our human condition and changing something in a way that points us to the fact that this can only be God alone who did it. On the day of Pentecost, a great crowd gathers. I mean, the crowd is described as being from tribes and tongues of almost every nation under earth. And the great and glorious miracle of God, which is on display before them, after this mighty rushing wind, this, this great sound which originally gathers them, uh, the great miracle which is on display before them is that a bunch of Galileans, I mean, Galileans aren't known as being the most erudite. That means kind of like well-studied, student-like people on the planet. You know, <laughs> like uh, what good comes from Nazareth? And Galileans are looked down on. And yet this group of Galileans, 
who aren't from Jerusalem, the capital city where all the great rabbis would congregate in the center of religious pride for the nation of Israel, these Galileans are speaking in languages they couldn't possibly know. How is it that these simple fishermen, Peter and John and James, are speaking in languages like Parthian and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians? This is boggling the mind of the people who are listening and you want to know why because it's a miracle because God has moved his hand and caused men who did not know a language to speak a language and they're not just speaking gobbledygook right they're not just uttering the first pronouns and sounds and vowels and consonants which come into their head they are literally making sense they are declaring the great and glorious works of God I mean I don't know which great and glorious works they're talking about but they might very well have been speaking about Father Abraham uh, and and the miracle of uh, of Isaac and uh, they might be talking about Joseph and and God keeping the nation of Israel safe in the Old Testament of of Moses and God raising up that great prophet and, and calling his people out of Egypt about the parting of the Red Sea about God stopping the sun so that it didn't move during a battle of God bringing his people to the promised land of God sustaining his people Israel I don't know exactly which great and glorious miracles that they were saying but what I do know is that they were talking of the great and glorious deeds of God and they were making sense in languages nobody had ever taught them um I quite enjoy languages. I, I used to be a computer programmer. Um, I, I, I can program in uh, Visual Basic. I can program in COBOL, which is kind of like 60 years old. You know, I mean, no, nobody remembers how to program in COBOL. Uh, when, when I left the, the, the programming world, um, I started to um, get into Greek and I, I, I learned a bit of Greek. It took me years before I could start to read the New Testament in the language that it was written. I still haven't wrapped my mind around Hebrew. Um, I serve a very multi-ethnic church. Um, our church is made up uh, kind of 60% um, uh, black, about 40% white, and um, and a fair, uh, I mean, I, I realize that we've run out of percentages, yeah, a fair number of people in between, um, because, you know, South Africa is a smarty box of joyful colors and celebration. Um, I tried to learn Zulu, because I thought that that would really help my ministry uh, up here in Johannesburg. I can say a couple of phrases, and I can put a smile on Google Hannah's face, and I can make Google Miriam laugh um, but the reality is languages take time this is a miracle and this is what makes Pentecost so fascinating and the miracle is that these guys are not speaking some unknown angelic language they are speaking languages known to men that's what tongues is tongues creates astounding or a sense of wonder in the in the in the hearers as they recognize that this is a sign which points to God that's what a miracle is it's a sign which points to God and creates awe and wonder in the in the observers so that they can attribute it to no one other than God you know folk as I 
As I look at the time, I realize that we are not going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're not going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're not going to deal with angelic tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which would have been great. Um, and that we do need to do that at another stage. We, we also need to look at the use of tongues in, I think, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 17. Um um, but but we're going to have to do that on another day. We we're, we're coming to the end uh, of today's show. Um, so grateful for the questions that have come in. Recognize that we haven't been able to answer all of the questions. Very grateful that you guys asked them. Um, and I will try and do some work even after the show uh, of going through at least the ones that I have access to. Um, I will encourage you to tune in next week um, or the week after as we come back and as we go through a number of other biblical questions and engage with people who love God's church and who love God's word and who desire to see God's people edified and grown up and built up. For the sake of my throat, I am going to need uh, to draw things to a close today. We we are going to close in a song, um, but even as we as we draw things uh, to an end, uh, let let me say um, our prayers do necessarily need to go out um, to our elders and to our deacons who hold the line in local churches, as well as to our missionaries who serve in foreign fields. Our prayers and our respect needs to go out to first responders and police and all those who dispense justice, firefighters, paramedics, nurses uh, in our nation and medical personnel and correctional official officers. You've been listening to Table Talk with me, Mark, uh, your host. Uh, We're going to be going to news after the musical interlude. So until next week, go with God.